With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Greetings and thank you for joining me on today's episode entitled The Killing of Our Children. First, please allow me to extend my heartfelt condolences on myself, behalf of myself personally, as well as the African American Juvenile Justice Project, to the families of Nivea Lachey Adams of South Carolina, Cedric Jackson of Texas, and Camille Cupcake McKinney of Alabama. Many of you may have been following over the last couple of weeks the tragic deaths of three children whom happened to be African-American children. Cedric Jackson was an 18-month-old boy out of the state of Texas, and Camille Cupcake McKinney was three years old, and she resided in Alabama. And Nivea Lachey Adams was a five-year-old little girl from South Carolina. Ironic about the deaths of these three innocent children is that all of them were found in a dumpster, a landfill. Like most of us, when we hear about missing and exploited children, we generally try to surmise or make sense of that tragic act. But then most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we also take an opportunity to determine, if at all, who are the perpetrators? Who are these monsters that are taking our children and killing them? And if we look a little deeper, many of us will be more likely than not to try to determine the background of that person, a profile, if you will, the race, the gender, the socioeconomic status of that person. For many of us, we never think that black children would be found in a dumpster or landfill, moreover, that they would be placed there by black people. Ironic about the deaths of these three children is that all of their perpetrators to date thus far as known in Cedric Jackson's case and in Camille Cupcake's case, were black. No one would generally surmise or think that black men or women would leave their children's remains in those places. History has always told us, statistically speaking, factually speaking, that the profilers generally of those types of offenses have been white males. But it is now hit home in our own community. Three children, two of whom were discovered within the last two weeks. So what does this say? What do we do? And how do we as a community learn from these children's death? One, in terms of how to protect them. And two, How do we understand how we get to this point, if we can at all? And three, 
how do we now go forward understanding facts versus myths so that we too as a community can identify or profile these types of individuals who would commit these offenses upon our children. I'm hoping in the course of this episode to be able to do that. Many of you know for the last more than decade or so that the African American Juvenile Justice Project through Sherry Jefferson has attempted to be on the front line with regard to addressing issues that plague our community. Juvenile justice is not simply about holding the system accountable and responsible for what happens in our community, but also allowing us to come together to develop programs and services that educates and informs us, empowers us, and engages us so that we too can prevent some of these tragic offenses from occurring. It evaluates our community through different lenses, including deprivation and delinquency. And it allows us to take a good look at how the first six Ps can play a role in preventing these types of tragic tragedies. Parents, pastors, principals, the first schools of thought, if you will, the first homes, your house, the church house, the schoolhouse. The other three Ps is the role of the police, the prosecutors, and the prison. What are their duties? So let's evaluate these six Ps as it relates to the tragic deaths of these three children. And again, on behalf of the African American Juvenile Justice Project and Sherry Jefferson, our sincerest condolences go out to these families. According to Missing and Exploited Children, which maintains databases on the number of reported cases, there is a total of about 424,000 missing and exploited children in the United States, of which one-third, 33% are black children or identify as black and or African American. Let me repeat that. 424,000, almost a half a million reported missing and exploited children in America, of which 33%, one-third, identify as black and or African-American. African-Americans as a whole only represent 13% of the entire U.S. population. Think about that. And our children represent a smaller portion or percentage. So when you think of that many missing and exploited children, the first thing that we ask ourselves is who, what, when, where, why, and how, right? So we know the what, they're missing and exploited. But what does that really mean? So it means that someone has filed a police report to state that their child has gone missing. As it relates to this age group, you generally would immediately identify them as missing and exploited and not runaways, which is generally the category that older black children fall into, ages eight. To 18. That in and of itself is a separate show, and for purposes of what I'm attempting to do in this show, I'm not going to elaborate any further on that, but that is food for thought. Most children 8 to 18 are identified as runaways and not as missing. When they are in the age groups of these children, Adam, Jackson, and the McKinney, we immediately would resolve that this is a missing and exploited case. So what then happens? We either go to the police department immediately, 
or some parents begin to try to search for their children on their own immediately. And then if they're not able to identify the who, what, when, where's, and why's, they seek police intervention. Most of our white counterparts operate a little differently um, in that they immediately identify the authorities. Their children are immediately identified as missing. Amber or Levi avert alerts are immediately issued. In the meantime, they rally their communities, um, going door to door, house to house, at stores, putting out T-shirts, pamphlets, leaflets, and they engage. Those are things that we too can learn in our community. No community is safe from predators, regardless of their background, but there are things that we can do or that we do that make us more vulnerable, and there are things that we can do that will prevent us from becoming as vulnerable, the who, what, when, where's, and why's. And one of the cases, there's a young girl who's attending a birthday celebration or a gathering in a housing project, a community that is identified based on income. And in that setting, one would ask, how could this child have been taken from that environment without anyone else recognizing her departure, kidnapping, or being taken or stolen? So let's first talk about how it happens. When we have our children in the public space, there are duties that we have. This is not to point fingers at parents or anyone. It is to educate us as a community going forward so that these incidences stop. When you're in a public space, oftentimes, especially if you're home in a home-based environment, you feel safe. You think everybody knows you. They know who your children and offsprings are. They understand you and your kinfolk, and no one is about to bring you harm. But it is in those environments where we tend to let our guards down in a way that may allow for our children or loved ones to be more likely than not susceptible to being kidnapped. It is also an environment that is conducive to predators because many of them, black and white alike, tend to think that in low-income communities, our children are deemed less valuable. And so why not take them? Who's going to care? Who's going to look for them? The same mentality that impacts our community with relationships to policing and safeguarding our communities is the same mentality that predators use to attack and prey upon our communities. Lack of police enforcement and engagement. In most block parties and birthday party situations in certain communities, they will ask law enforcement to come through the community. This is particularly true in suburban communities or where birthday parties are in middle-class communities. They will ask law enforcement or a member of law enforcement to come and serve for security. In most housing developments, they have their own police department. 
Many of them do not do what needs to be done all the time, or they're spread so thin that it makes it almost impossible for them to be in the same places at the same time all the time. In an environment like this, one would ask, how could someone have entered that space and removed that child without anyone else in the community seeing it and, more importantly, questioning them about touching and removing this child? Create spaces that are safe for our children. When you're doing birthday parties and celebrations and block parties, ask for someone to serve in a capacity of security. Ask for certain gateways to be secured so that there may be one or two ways in that are guarded and protected and out. So that if there are children there, try to require bands on their arms and that any person's coming in who doesn't have these bands or not registered or not invited, they cannot enter that space. It is similar to what is happening in amusement parks and at state fairs and carnivals and the like. But believe it or not, in a lot of suburban communities, that's what they do for their parties. Even where there's a home-based party, you will see a uniformed officer or a police patrol car that they have hired, blue light, moonlighting these people to come in to serve and protect them. Swimming parties, pool parties, if you will. I see it all the time. And you think, well, people don't have the money. Sure, you do. It's a matter about allocating what is important. So you might ask local law enforcement, do you guys provide protection? Do your guys moonlight legally and they get to work, a side job? Well, we have a party that we're hosting for children, and we would like police presence. Alternatively, a least cost-effective way, again, somebody in that community that you trust, you say this is the entrance, this is the exit, we want someone manning both doors. This is who this child came in with. How do two people get to come into an environment like that and remove a child? And for what purposes? Sex trafficking of our children is very prominent. The majority of the children in America who are victims of sex trafficking are not internationals and immigrants. They are black children in America. They are generally pandered or pimped by our men and are sold for purchase and the profit for white men and industries owned and operated by whites. So when our children are being abducted, there is usually a rhyme or reason to it. Sex trafficking, selling the children for sex to predators is one of them. And yet, Issues of drug abuse is another. For those of you who can recall the crack era at its peak in major cities and rural communities across America, we may remember the sad stories of women who were so strung out where the guys who were selling them drugs, the dealers, were literally negotiating and bartering their children, their little boys and their girls, in exchange for drugs. 
women being so strung out and men alike, would sell their children in exchange for a hit of crack. Their children were victims of sex trafficking, sodomies, rape, child molestations, sexual assaults, and abuse. Many of these children died. Some are still alive with HIV or full-blown AIDS or mental health disorders or drug addicts. Drugs will make individuals do such things. Go get me a child. Because that child has the value that is the equivalent of a brick, a kilo of cocaine. It sells the same way. Unfortunate mental health and illness is another reason why people are abducting our children. There are some who do it because they are barren, they have no children, and they want a child of their own. Unfortunately, what tends to happen in all three of these scenarios is that once they learn that someone is looking for that child, many of them panic and death ultimately becomes the only resort for them. Many of these children are still alive when the search begins, but the perpetrators panic. There was a case of a six-year-old little boy many years ago, about five years ago now, who went missing, and the father and the perpetrator, not the father of the child, but the perpetrator and his father and mother had abducted the six-year-old child and was sexually molesting that child. While they were looking for the child, the child was still in their home. They panicked also and eventually thought it was best to strangle the child and abandon the child in the woods in a garbage bag by a dumpster. Same thing happened with a seven-year-old girl, Spanish young lady. Her abductor held her, abused her, had her during the search, and when nightfall came, decided it was best to put her, too, in a garbage. What can our communities do and what can law enforcement do that might say to these people who are holding or abducting these children who may very well still be alive at the time that you issue your APB, that when you are initiating or communicating this all-points bulletin, that return the child safely. How do we educate these people that you can return a child and you might suffer aggravated assault, child molestation charges, et cetera, but not a murder or capital punishment case? How do we articulate it in a way that it serves as a negotiating and a bargaining tool to return children safely back home? And yes, it pains us to know that these children would have been offended, abused, but at the same time, your child is still alive. So when we are communicating through mass media, social and digital media, about missing and abducted children, maybe we need to rethink the manner in which we communicate to the public such that these criminals 
or those who are watching or maybe watching or may hear will think, I just need to drop this child off at a gas station. Remember when young women were giving birth to children and leaving them in the woods or killing them? And what was the thing? How did we resolve that? We said, drop these infants off at gas stations or school or church. Find safe places to leave them. That has to be the same conversation that we now have, implement design and then orchestrate, put into action law enforcement when communicating about the return of children that have been abducted. Take that child to a nearest gas station. You have an Amber or Levi alert, take the child to the nearest gas station. Drop that child off. You might think, well, they're going to be seen. No, find a safe place. There's a way that you can tell that child get out of the car and run. There's a way that you can drop them off at an emergency room or building. You can leave that child in a safe place that would allow for them to be found alive as opposed to a landfill where they're found dead. Many of you have killed more so out of a panic and the fear of disassociating, disconnecting yourself with this child in hopes that you're not caught. But you're going to get caught anyway. So isn't it better that you find a safe place for that child? Return the child. Just like we're teaching young women to do who have unwanted pregnancies and they try to get rid of the child before someone finds out about it. Let's talk about the death of Cedric Jackson. Cedric Jackson was an 18-month-old black child in the state of Texas who was left to the custody of an aunt. And it is in that custody that her boyfriend killed that child. Her boyfriend. He made a mess with ketchup. And the boyfriend wrapped him and the child stopped breathing, and he panicked, and he decided after allegedly trying CPR on the child that it was best not to take the child to the hospital or to call 911. But again, in that state of panic, panic translates to becoming the murderer. You dump the child in a dumpster. All the what-ifs no longer apply, right? But we still have to ask the question, what if he thought to just simply call 911 when the child was not breathing? What if he thought to contact a neighbor? And then here's the bigger question. What are women doing that places their children that are in their care, custody, and control, whether theirs biologically or legally, to a third person to be subject to death? What are the telltale signs that may have been seen that could demonstrate how and why he was allowed to discipline this 18-month-old child anyway? Why would you allow your boyfriend to discipline an 18-year-old child left to your care, custody, and control. There may be reasons why the child was left there in the first place that might 
suggests mistreatment, maltreatment, or some form of abuse, or possibly the death of his parent. I don't know. But whatever it is, what would give the boyfriend the right to discipline this little 18-year-old innocent child? He, too, is a black man, 27 years of age, who is now facing a murder charge for killing an 18-month-old child. There are many people who do not need to be in possession, custody, or control of children for a multitude of reasons. There are many who do not have the mental, emotional, or psychological wherewithal or state to be in the presence of children. There are many who don't recognize what a child is supposed to do. Children make messes on themselves, around them. That's what a lot of them do. From our houses to the schoolhouse, people's patience with children are just slim to none. We've gone from taking, putting our children in time out to now our children being placed time in the penitentiary. We don't have the patience to recognize what it entails in terms of their development, their mental, emotional, and psychological and physical development. They are learning. This child only been in the world 18 months. 18 months he's been in the world. He doesn't understand the things that we as adults understand. And so we're apt and we're quick to punish, and we believe that that is discipline. And there is clearly a difference between discipline and punishment. And when we're dealing with our children, it is discipline that they need. And that is a loving environment that teaches them right from wrong. Punishment is penal, and in this case, it led to death. So going forward, what my communities do, why did he feel like he had to punish this child? Why did he feel like he had to take the child and dump him in a landfill? Those are questions we, or myself, may never be able to answer because we haven't had the opportunity to converse with him. However, in trying to understand how you can kill this 18-year-old child as a black man and put him in the dumpster, again, these are things that we never connect to our community. Some of the myths associated with the profile of child abductors in our community is that there are things we just don't do as black people. We don't put our children in the oven, right? We don't engage in exercise of our children, the exorcism of a child. We don't cut off their hands and feet. We don't chop them up. We don't leave them in landfills. I hate to think that with all these true crime stories that we're somehow depositing these thoughts in our minds, or if it's that we've been this way all the time, or has it become a learned behavior? History has never dictated that we engage in these type of abuses. But in 2019, as we reflect on 400 years since 1619, and the slavery, transatlantic slave, transatlantic slave trade, and the enslavement of black people, we do reflect on all 
that the aftermath of slavery has done to our community as a whole. But 400 years later, we can't continue to operate in excuses, deny, and justification. There are times when we do recognize the rights from the wrongs. And in protecting our children, we have let our guards down in home, schoolhouse, and the church house. And therefore, they end up in the police house and in the jail, courthouse and in the jailhouse. Or they end up dead. And so it is my hope and prayer that these three recent deaths, including Cupcake, the little precious three-year-old from Alabama, who too, her body was found in a dumpster. So now you have Nivier Lachey Adams at five years old, found in a dumpster. There has not been a formal arrest as of this morning, to my best knowledge and belief, regarding her perpetrator. But we do know that Camille and Cupcake, if you will, and Cedric, those are their perpetrators. So it is my hope and my prayer that going forward that we provide safe spaces for our children, that we educate ourselves on victimization, criminalization associated with sex trafficking of our youth and our children, that we demystify the profiles of what murderers of black children look like now, because we now know that they're right there in front of us. And in conclusion, the African-American Juvenile Justice Project, as founded by Sherry Jefferson, will continue to advocate and engage our community, and I don't need a special title to do so. Thank you for joining me today on Blog Talk Radio as I continue to educate, engage, empower, and encourage our community and all those who tune in and listen. Be blessed and be encouraged. And recognize a lie when you hear it or read it. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.